Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You've tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, episode 92, Lock and Key. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. It's Mike and Dave with you here. And it's time for a topic that I really was looking forward to as soon as I saw the first trailer, Lock and Key on Netflix. What a fun show, Dave. Yeah. What is it with IDW Comics, man? They're, <laughs> yeah. they're everywhere these days. Um, you know, Winona Earp, I believe, is IDW. Yeah, sure is. And it's definitely something that I think I would have gravitated to as a comic, if I had known about it, but as it was, I came to the show not knowing uh, its source material. I know a lot of people came to it anxious to see it interpreted in this adaptation because it is based on a comic book series by Joe Hill, who many people may know is Stephen King's son, although he definitely is a good writer in his own right. And and if Stephen King's shadow weren't so large, I think he would have emerged from it long ago. <laughs> see, I, I did not know that. Truthfully. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. He even makes a little cameo in uh, Lock and Key as one of the ambulance uh, technicians or, or medical technicians. So definitely cool to see that. And artist Gabriel Rodriguez did some really great art for the comic. And I think the gothic style, not, not really gothic, but kind of like goth in a way that, you know, the fashion style goth, that kind of goth <laughs> is the mood of the, the comic series. And we're going to talk about the first couple of episodes here, but because of the nature of the series, we're definitely going to have to go into the spoiler zone for overall impressions because this definitely has a buildup to some quite unexpected happenings at the end and a huge setup for season two, should there be one. And I'm definitely hopeful that that will be the case. Well, I I would think so. And as I told you earlier, I've only gotten through episode nine, so I'll be (laughs) momentarily ducking out during the end of the spoiler zone. But I I did notice that on Netflix, when you bring up lock and key, it's got this little thing up in the upper left-hand corner that it's number five on the u.s list whatever that means so i'm assuming it's one of the top 10 shows that's being watched on netflix at the present time so i'd say that bodes well for a or should i say that bodes well for a (laughs) season two yeah and it's definitely something that you have to figure out what the niche audience is because i sat down to watch it with my family having heard that it was good for kids. And I even have a couple coworkers who are watching it with their kids who are around my daughter's age. And my daughter was like, no, episode one was too scary. And I'm like, oh, that's a shame. And then the farther I got into it, the darker it got. And I'm like, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> this did not end up in our family viewing because it is quite dark considering the protagonists are children. Well, well, do you think they're going after the Stranger Things audience? Because I like this so much better than Stranger Things. Yeah, I think it's a series that 
has that same mood, but I think it's got its own flair as well. So I think it had its own identity, of course, from the comic as well. But let's talk a little bit about the premise of this series, because it does have that young adult novel feel to it, where the Locke family moves from Seattle to Massachusetts to their father's ancestral home known as Key House after he is murdered. And they do a great job at the beginning of the series kind of couching how that murder happened and what the circumstances were around it. Although they do have a pretty interesting cold open, (laughs) which we'll talk about. But when they get to Massachusetts, they do discover that there are keys with magical powers. And then there's a deeper story that suggests that there's a lot they don't know about, but both in the history of the house, the history of the family and others that might be coming after these keys for nefarious purposes. So we've got the mom who is Nina. She appears to rehabilitate houses for a living. She's a fixer upper and she takes on key house as a project to heal wounds and perhaps learn a little bit more about her husband, things that she was not aware of, especially considering the circumstances of his death and just get a fresh start for the family. I was excited to see that the eldest of the three lock children, Tyler is played by a very familiar face from falling skies. He played Ben on that show, Connor Jessup. Yeah. And you know, falling skies has been off the air for what? Five years. He looks the same. He (laughs) does. That's true. He still looks like he could play that age because it's pretty much the same age that he's playing that he would have in falling skies as well. He's a stoic hockey player type guy Then we've got the middle child, Kinsey. She's a withdrawn loner, at least at first. And then Bodie is the life-loving, curious sort who's fascinated by the adventure. He seems to be the only one that's excited, besides his mom, to be moving to Massachusetts from Seattle. They left all their friends behind. And uh, he's kind of seeing this giant, mysterious house as something to explore. And I think that's probably how I would react at his age as well. Yeah. Now, you know, one thing you mentioned at the beginning of the discussion, the gothic element that kind of hangs over everything. And and I guess I really do see that New England Nathaniel Hawthorne-ish gothic element, particularly when they're at Key House. Yeah, definitely. It's got a bit of a Victorian flair to it. And it does go back quite a bit farther than that, we find out through the course of the series. But this death of the father is really a central piece to the show. And of course, in these first two episodes that are in the non-spoiler zone, we know that Rendell was a guidance counselor. In fact, he was the guidance counselor at his own children's school. And there is a bit of tension between Rendell and Tyler that comes out in flashbacks. But at first, all we know is that this student, Sam Lesser, came to the house with a gun and demanded to know more about Key House. He shot Nina in the leg to force Rendell to talk. And then when Tyler showed up at the front door, his dad tried to take the gun and it went off killing him. And Kinsey and Bodie hid under a table while Nina was able to drag herself up and use a hammer to knock Sam out. And that's pretty much all we know in the first couple episodes. But the fact that Sam asked about Key House before committing the murder is what really makes this mysterious. Right, because they're still in Seattle at this point, and I do have to say a classic Jack Bauer move, shoot the wife in the leg to get information out of the husband. (laughs) Yeah, definitely from straight out of 24. Yep. But first, let's talk about that opening scene, because we see a man who is told on the phone that Rendell Locke is dead, 
This man sort of assembles some papers and photographs, including a photograph that we see several times throughout the series, where it's a bunch of teenagers hanging out together, party style. He puts all this stuff on a table and then plunges a decorative key into his chest, causing fire to consume him in a huge conflagration, and it engulfs the house as well. And we're presuming he's destroying evidence of some kind, but of what? We are not sure in that in that opening. And so I guess we're left to wonder quite a while into the series, I think, what that was and who that was and how it relates to the mystery that unfolds in these first couple episodes. Yeah, and I think the show really does a good job of judiciously employing flashback scenes because so many shows these days, it just goes overboard with the flashbacks. But here, they really make us wait and the actual context eventually makes sense. Right, and the times that the flashbacks happen usually have some kind of logic to them as well. Someone is you know, feeling something or looking at something mournfully, that sort of thing. But upon arrival at the key house, we see Uncle Duncan and Killjoy's fans will definitely have recognized him as Aaron Ashmore, who obviously has some sci-fi cred. So him showing up here was just a joy for genre TV fans. (laughs) Unfortunately, he gets not so much play in this series, but he does have some mysteries uh, along with his character as well. But he gives them the, the grand tour of the place. It's been a bit neglected, but he's happy to be rid of it. You can tell that he doesn't really care that it hasn't been cared for, even though obviously it's been in his family for a while. And the first thing that happens is Bodhi discovers a well house and takes a picture with his little Polaroid that he's been using to sort of uh, journal his journey across the country. And the photograph drops into the well only to show up at the top of the well once again, and it causes Bodhi to kind of call down into the well. How did this photograph get up here? Who's down there? Hello. And then when he says, are you my echo? He gets the answer. Yes. And of course, no one believes him because that's the plight of the youngest in any show like this. (laughs) But you know, anytime you center a show around young people, you're on the risk of is it fair to say dumbing it down, making it sillier than it needs to be? Because they absolutely do not do that here. And even with Bodhi, I mean, he makes some questionable decisions, but then we say, well, he's 10 years old or whatever he is. And he never comes across though, as that obnoxious little kid. No. In fact, a lot of times he wants to be included and is very resentful of his siblings for leaving him out of some of the things they're trying to protect him from. He's like, listen, I was the one that started down this path. So give me some respect. Right. You got to give him props for that. But he also finds uh, a key in his sister's necklace, basically by virtue of some whispering and the echo at the bottom of the well told him that this whispering indicates some keys that he should definitely seek out. And so the anywhere key is able to take him to this ice cream shop that they had visited on their road trip, but it won't take him to the Eiffel Tower, interestingly, when he's trying to prove it to Kinsey that this key takes him anywhere they want. And the, I love how the echo kind of explains that, well, have you ever seen a door at the Eiffel Tower? It doesn't work unless there's a door. But the other thing that I was a little confused about with that key, does it have to be a door that you had been through previously in your life i kind of got that impression but maybe not well it definitely is the case 
in the comic that you have to have seen the door before you could use that key. But I don't know if they were consistent about that in this series. So if they were, then kudos to them for that, because it definitely would have been consistent with how it was in the book. But I like that he finds another key almost immediately in the garbage disposal. You get the sense that there are tons of these keys hidden around. And he's told by the Echo that this new key could let him see his father and he should show it to his mom. And this time when he uses it on a door, it doesn't really work, but a keyhole does appear on a nearby mirror instead. And it pulls his mom inside and traps her. And then when he shows Kinsey and Tyler that something weird is going on with this mirror and the key that, that goes along with it, they have to buy into it and, and rescue their mother. But what's interesting, and I think uh, this plays into a lot of different facts throughout the series, the mom doesn't even remember it after they rescue her because this is something only kids can remember. It's kind of got that Narnia feel to it. Or as I say, the adult trope, because, (laughs) and that is one of the things that I guess bothers me a little bit, but that said, I love the show. So it's just one of those little things that, okay, every show uses tropes, Yeah, but I don't know. It just seems like it's always, and truth be told, the kids are a lot smarter than the adults in this series. <laughs> yeah. And, and the other trope I think that comes into play that could have been much more dangerous is that they have these fantastic powers, these keys that are a little bit too powerful and it can really put you in some narrative traps. So I think it's very interesting that you know, the Echo has to tell Bodhi how to rescue his mom because she laid the trap for them, of course. And I'll tell you the answer of how to do it if you give me the Anywhere key, and he hands it over. Now, if that Anywhere key had remained in the Locke family's possession, I think it would have come in super duper handy. (laughs) But the fact that it was in the Echo's hand, I think, allowed her to do her villainous role much more easily as well. So she's able to go and actually visit with Sam Lesser in prison. So clearly there's a tie between her and Sam, but we don't know what that is in these, in these first episodes, but they're not done with it yet. And in episode two, Bodhi finds another key in a vacuum cleaner bag and he tries to open a door with it that has a skull on it, but nope, that's not the right key for that. I think at first Bodhi thinks that all these keys go to doors, which of course they don't the mirror key kind of proved that point. So he has to do some investigation and he goes to a cabin nearby where he meets this boy, Rufus, who seems to be kind of a a teenager who maybe is on the autism spectrum and they kind of bond. And this Rufus has basically maintained the ground of the lock mansion. And so they kind of, get together over GI Joe's, I think is the, is the common thread between the two of them. And so Rufus kind of buys into it right away, which I think is really sweet in a way. And they have their little military speak because of the GI Joe's where we need to trap our enemy. And of course, Rufus kind of naively hands over a bear trap and how scary oh was that god. thing? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I, it, I mean, I guess I knew instinctively they weren't going to have him cut his arm off or something, but oh my gosh, when he's trying to set it in his bedroom. Uh, yeah. But then there's a nice, another little cameo. I mentioned Joe Hill was, isn't an ambulance driver later in the series, but I found out that when Bodie goes to the shop to find out about this new key, he asks this general store person who 
I guess has keys himself, old keys. He takes a look at it. That clerk is played by Tom Savini, who is the special effects guy for all these horror movies that the Savini club that happens at the school keeps referring to. So <laughs> this, this Savini himself makes a cameo in this series. Kind of cool. But gives them some information about the key, allows Bodhi to take some keys with him to use as bait in that bear trap. But when the shopkeeper is holding the key, Bodhi notices a keyhole open on the back of the shopkeeper's neck. And so he's actually able to think of how this key might be used on one's own body. And this is by far the coolest key, even though maybe not the most powerful, but it gives the most insight into the characters and the story at large which we'll get into some of the examples of that in a bit. But we do see Echo then going off, and her name eventually we learn is Dodge, but I'm just using her name Echo in this one because we didn't know the Dodge name until much later. But the shoplifting spree that she goes on is showing someone who has been trapped in the bottom of this well this whole time, and now she's out and she's going to be living it up. But she's also got obviously some destinations in mind but the one scene that I was talking with a coworker today about is this guy that she meets in a club kind of takes him home and has a sexual conquest with him only to then just kill him right away. So I guess that's to set the stage that this lady is even worse than we may have thought. But I felt that that was a little gratuitous. <laughs> yeah. And they're pretty low key with the sexual innuendo and, and, and sexuality. I mean, we do have a few scenes, but, but yeah, I agree with you, but I think they needed to almost hit us over the head with the fact that this, despite how gorgeous she is, despite her great taste in clothes that she shoplifts, <laughs> she's evil. And yeah, I guess they needed to establish that hardcore. This is not a normal thing. And we definitely get the sense that there's something supernatural going on with her as well. Well, right. And that she is the nemesis that the lock children are now going to have to face off against. Right. Especially if she's already taken one of their keys. But when Bodhi is unsuccessful in springing the trap, it's no more Mr. Nice Guy. She doesn't even now pretend to be his friend anymore. And she wants the keys for herself. As a last resort, he tries the key on himself and it basically turns him off, you might say. And then he shows up next to himself having an out-of-body experience, I guess. And he's able to go inside this giant G.I. Joe trunk, which we learn later is basically exploring his own mind. And that's where the head key comes into play. But that's in spoiler zone territory, so we won't go into too much detail other than to say the head key is damn cool. <laughs> But uh, there's also a drama element to this series because life in Matheson and the social life that these characters enjoy is quite insightful as well. And it's actually uh, brings up some of the coolest evolutions for especially Kinsey and Tyler and the mom as they get over their guilt that they have surrounding the dad's death. So we do see Kinsey at first eating alone in the stairwell at Matheson Academy She's approached by this British guy who was running the ice cream shop that she met earlier, Scott Cavendish. He wants her to join the Savini Squad, which is a group of kids who enjoy Tom Savini's special effects work in iconic horror movies. So she hangs out with them during a movie, but it kind of sets off her PTSD. And we do get the sense that her and Tyler both have some trauma that they're dealing with. And being part of a horror movie set 
is probably not the best idea if you're suffering that way. Well, right. And, and, you know, obviously the central theme of the show focuses on the magic and the magic keys and all of that. But really, there's also that underlying theme that really propels all their actions. And as you just implied, they're coping with their father's death, the regrets they have, obviously the guilt that one of them feels. And I just think it all works so well together. It definitely is. And we're going to definitely tackle that in the spoiler zone. Not so much that it has spoilers associated with it, but because it bears mentioning when we're reflecting on the series at large. So yeah, that, that's definitely one of my favorite parts. And Tyler, we get to see him. He's doing well at hockey practice. He does catch the attention of the other hockey bros, especially Javi and Brinker. He's invited to a party and he's definitely a popular guy right at the start. The uh, best looking girl at school, supposedly, or the, I guess the most promiscuous one, Eden, tries to hook up with him, but he, he starts to freak out. He has his own PTSD moment as well and leaves her in the lurch. Plus, it does appear that he likes her friend Jackie a little bit better, and that's something that evolves throughout the series. But he let his bros believe that he did have a sexual encounter with Eden. And so when Jackie comes to him later and wants him to set the record straight because she knows that that did not happen. It kind of gives you the sense that, okay, Eden is kind of a party girl. She's just someone who's a little bit more superficial, but Jackie is not only someone that Tyler's going to be attracted to, but she's also going to be someone with a little bit more moral character at her center. Yeah. You know, and uh, Wayne and I are talking about impulse and the actress that plays Jackie plays Patty in impulse. And I, I made the comment that I felt in the first two episodes, she was going down the road of playing that superficial character. And I'll just say that's something to keep an eye on her, how her character develops throughout the course of this series. Yeah. Because they do have these stereotypical, you know, jocks and popular girls and stuff like that. And in fact, ha- Javi and Brinker, they're not really cool guys. Javi parks in a handicapped spot. He shoplifts beer and tries to get Tyler to do it with him. And it's really not cool. But I do like that one of the guys that appears to be kind of in the popular crowd and, a, and an athlete in his own right is Logan, who actually has both of his legs missing. And, you know, he actually bonds with Tyler over the fact that Javi parked in the handicapped spot. So I thought that was a nice little touch for a minor character that ends up playing a key role now and again. Oh, no pun there, huh? <laughs> key role. Yeah. But yeah, so they do have some great character v- development in the series. And another character that comes into play that you think might be minor at first is Ellie Whedon. And Ellie knows the town quite well because she grew up there and has some knowledge of the Locke family history. And so when she stops by to see Nina, because her son Rufus is the one that's been taking care of the grounds, and she teaches Jim part-time at the academy where the kids are going to school, she is able to identify the different people in the photograph that Nina's wondering about. Who are all these people in this photo? And her boyfriend, Lucas, like the love of Ellie's life, was Rendell's best friend, and yet Nina has never heard of him. So clearly Rendell was keeping some secrets about his past with Nina, and it's really kind of piquing Nina's interest and is a big reason why she moved the family here in the first place. Right. Which begs the question, did she do it for herself or did she do it for her children, as she says? And I think we know the answer. Yeah. It's like if she could have made an escape from the scene of the trauma, sure. But to go back to 
you know, her husband's family home maybe was a little bit selfish of her, but, you know, in, a, in an understandable way. So later at the school, Nina runs into Tyler's English teacher, who also knew Rendell and his friends, was their teacher as well. And he mentions a tragedy, which Ellie then later clears up later on, was the three of the friends in that picture drowning in a sea cave during their senior year. And Nina says, what the heck? And she asked Duncan, this is your brother. How come Rendell never mentioned it? But very mysteriously, Duncan also can't remember the time period, has no recollection of it. And it bothers him somewhat, but he kind of just brushes it off. And you know that something's something's up with Duncan. Why doesn't he have anything other than a general dislike for the key house without any childhood memories to speak of? Yeah, and understandably, Nina is not exactly sure why he's deliberately keeping it from her because that's how she sees it. Right. And why wouldn't she see it that way? Exactly. It takes a long time for all the facts to come to light, even for the kids, much less for the adults who have trouble, you know, holding on to the memories of the magical occurrences happening around them. But we definitely have to dive into spoiler zone at this point, because those first two episodes just give you a little taste of the characters and the premise of the show and give us a couple of the keys, but there's a lot more keys where that came from. So let's go ahead and head into the spoiler zone. And Dave, I'll give you a heads up when I'm going to be talking about episode 10. Sounds good. You are now entering the spoiler zone. All right. So in the spoiler zone, how could we not talk about the different keys? And the head key was, as I mentioned earlier, my favorite one, because it was so useful for narrative purposes, because the lock children, they use it first to sort of see what it does. And they are able to compare different versions of a memory that they have of their dad telling them a bedtime story. And they kind of get the sense that the dad tailored this bedtime story to the different children. Sometimes it was darker. Sometimes it had a happy ending. And this kind of gives you a sense that, okay, Rendell Locke wasn't just a guidance counselor. He also was kind of like a, a expert at his, at his own kid's psychology. <laughs> yeah. And you do have to question though, why he made Tyler's version so darn dark. Yeah, I guess because he's the eldest. I don't know. But it also just shows you that, you know, memories is, is subjective. And so the way they remember their father's death might not be exactly the way they think it is. And it has a lot to do with their guilt. But another cool purpose for the head key that Tyler used, and they only did it the one time, he was actually able to add knowledge to his head in order to try and impress Jackie. He just opened his memory door, his head door, if you will, and threw a bunch of books in there. I thought that was really kind of a cool trick. (laughs) Well, what I also liked about that scene is it really gives us insight into Jackie's character because the reason he did it, he thought because she told him that she's an Anglophile. Well, maybe she's not as much an Anglophile as she made herself out to be. And she admits it right away to him. Yeah. She was just making conversation, dude. (laughs) Yeah. But by far the best use of the head key was Kinsey removing her fear and actually have to give her props for being so ingenious so early in her knowledge of the keys because she saw that this creature was inside her head and, you know, they had this instinctual knowledge of what everything meant 
in their own head because it was their head, right? <laughs> so right. she knew that this creature was her fear and she thought, what would happen if I just removed that? And so throughout the series, this provided some of the most understated ethical problems that she experienced because her fear was not there to put her in check. So yes, it did have some nice positive consequences, made her more confident and helped her make friends, but it also made her not care about certain things that she needed to care about. Right. And she does learn eventually that a certain amount of fear is healthy. And, you know, while I haven't seen yet whether she is able to put it back inside her head, I suspect she'll figure out a way to do that. Again, as you said, it was such a great narrative tool because it was a learning experience for not only her, but her brother as well. Oh, yeah. And that's the key piece is Tyler, because, you know, they all have a certain amount of guilt, but Tyler actually had an offhanded comment to Sam, the murderer of his father, when they were both in the guidance office together waiting to talk to Mr. Locke. And, you know, Sam had a pretty bad father who was abusive. And so he mentioned something about killing his dad to Tyler. Tyler kind of just sarcastically said, well, why don't you kill my dad while you're at it? So obviously when he does do exactly that, Tyler's going to think that Sam was doing it at his request. And of course that's not the case. Yeah. And he's been carrying that around ever since the murder. Right. Of course, it turns out that Sam was following the influence of Dodge this whole time. But even Kinsey thinks that her fear was what killed her dad because she stayed under the table. She could have grabbed that poker and gone at Sam with it. And of course, Tyler has to point out to her that, listen, you were doing those things because you were protecting Bodhi, not because you were afraid of what would happen if you sprung out from hiding. So I think those were just some great insights. And even Ellie was able to use the head key to share her memories of what really happened back when she and the others were kids. So that was a convenient narrative tool as well, because otherwise we wouldn't have been able to see that except in a flashback. So it kind of took the place of a flashback in that sense. But there was a little bit of confusion with some of the keys, especially when Ellie was said to have taken charge of two keys in particular, the well key to the well house and the identity key, which obviously Dodge was able to use to switch forms between Lucas and Dodge. But wasn't Dodge in female form in the well? So why wasn't she in Lucas form that whole time? That's what really makes me scratch my head. Not to mention, how the heck did she reach across space and time, if you will, all the way to Seattle to influence Sam through an etching of Lock House? That seemed to be a bit of a stretch, even within the internal crazy logic of the show. So I did have a, a few problems like that, that I felt were sort of plot holes, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Or at least they're left unexplained at this point in the narrative. Let's be kind <laughs> there and, and put it that way. Yeah, maybe. But uh, I definitely think that some of those keys, including the identity key, were pretty cool. But, you know, the mistaken identity trope is... A dangerous one. You know, they have to be very careful because that trope can get very annoying fast. It was really well done by the conclusion of the season. So I did like that one. But again, you know, the keys could prove very problematic. They're a little bit too powerful. I really did not like the music box key 
which allowed anyone that was holding both the key and the music box to make people do their bidding. Way too powerful. I'm glad they kept that to a single use, especially since it didn't actually paint Kinsey in a very good light. No, and I think it drives home the point for the kids just how powerful these keys are. And again, sometimes it's easy to lose track of the fact that these are 15, 16, 17-year-old kids. They're going to do stupid stuff, particularly to a bully when they have the chance. Exactly. And of course, Eden does have her own lessons to learn anyway. So by the end of the series, and at this point, I do have to ask Dave, usually Dave doesn't care about getting spoiled, but he cares enough about (laughs) this series to not get spoiled by the twist ending that I'm about to talk about. So Dave, I'll message you in Skype when I'm done. (laughs) Sounds good. All right. (laughs) All right. So now it's just you and me, listener. (laughs) So this twist ending, obviously it was kind of cool that you could tell in all the fray that someone did get hit by one of those glowing bullets when they opened the door. But I I think they really hit it well, but I did want to make that question. What do these demons want? Because obviously now that bullet has awoken in Eden, just the same way that it awoken in Lucas. What do they want? Do they want to release their kind in our world? Do they want to reclaim the keys and take them home? Because I think there's a reason which I'm going to bring Dave in to talk about that might have something to do with that that comes from the comic. So very interesting. I thought the twist ending was really well done, but got to give them props for uh, surprising me in the end, even though you could tell that something was off about Gabe this whole time. <laughs> All right, let me get Dave back in here. All right, I'm back. Okay, good. <laughs> All right, so I talked about a couple of things with the listeners, Dave, but I want to bring up a, a fun fact from the comic that might have a little bit of an explanation for why people like Dodge or creatures like Dodge, if you will, are coming after these keys, right? Okay. And so what I found out from the comic, this uh, whispering iron that's left behind when a glowing bullet, as they called it, doesn't find a host, it turns out that glowing bullet, you know, you think of a bullet being made out of metal, and so if a, one of those bullets coming out of the black door doesn't find a host, it leaves its residue behind. And that's apparently what the keys are made out of. That's what makes them magical is that they come from, you know, whatever's behind the, the black door. And in the course of the comic, a lock ancestor is shown to have made these keys in the 1700s. And these ancestors are even older than Chamberlain Locke who is that old man that was hanging out in the graveyard when Bodhi used the ghost key to kind of wander around the grounds. A great spy tool, by the way, that ghost key. (laughs) But that's a loose end I really would love to see in a season two because that whole scene with Chamberlain Locke was kind of just a throwaway. You, you, You know they just wanted to bring it in from the comic, but it didn't really have any narrative significance in this in the TV series. Right. Now, you know, you and I have talked to a number of showrunners and writers through the years, and you almost have to believe they knew this was going to be a hit series for Netflix. So you wonder if, you know, you said throwaway scene and in the larger context of just season one. Yeah, it is. But are they laying groundwork for something to do in season two? I guess maybe. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm getting at. And I I have faith that they will, but I just wanted to mention that the family history that goes farther back is something that I definitely 
would like to see. And I guess the very fact that they included Chamberlain Locke proves that they are going to address that. And and so people who maybe have read the comic before coming to the series took that maybe as encouragement <laughs> because the ghost key otherwise, like I said, was just used as a spy tool so that, you know, you could see what was going on around without being seen. So definitely a cool key. And there were a bunch of cool keys that got used throughout the series that we didn't get to talk about. But obviously there's only so much we can address in the, in the course of these podcasts. But I really loved Lock and Key and just had a lot of fun. It was a fun adventure, even though it did have its flaws along the way. And like we've been saying in a lot of these podcasts, Dave, if you really like the characters, if you enjoy their development throughout the series and how they change and how they evolve, that goes a long way towards enjoying the series in general. Well, yeah. And, you know, one of my favorite things about this series is the dynamic between Tyler and Kinsey. I mean, I'm certainly partial to sibling relationships, but having only a brother myself, to see how they first fit into the school. Look, he's a hot guy. Obviously, they they make that clear. But she's clearly attractive when she wants to be. I mean, once when they start going to the school, I, I think the trauma of what happened in Seattle is still with her, and she's just trying to get through each day. But what I really love about the two of them is how, you know, they have their ups and downs, just like any other brother and sister. But the scene that really sticks out for me is when they realize that their mother has started drinking again. Yeah, yeah. And then they also realize that because she's drinking again, she remembers the magic. So now they've got that dilemma. If she keeps drinking, then we can share everything we're going through with her. So what do we do? And yeah. right away, no, that's not an option. She cannot drink. And, and that's the tack they take. And then later, when we see her get the bottle from under the sink and we're just pour it down the sink, pour it down the sink. And that's what she does. And, you know, I'm not very forgiving of parents that essentially abandon their children through drugs or alcohol or whatever but cut her a break because we know what she's been through and just to see that strength that she has there at the end again despite everything she's been through a second time yeah well it's especially i mean we have to keep in mind that she was an alcoholic before rendell right sure (laughs) got killed but but it's also very poignant when you know obviously she went through all that she helped them find the omega key because if she hadn't smashed open the cremation urn they would have never found it. But then when she starts getting sober again, she immediately says, I thought something happened to that urn and she's already started to forget. And there's a little bit of regret there, which is kind of weird, but right. Kind of a fun literary thing at the same time. So, right. And and we knew she had to put the urn in the cabinet to see what would happen (laughs) to see if he would come back. Yeah, that was great. So yeah, lots of good keys just like that. They obviously don't end up with all the keys at the end, but they do have some hidden away in Kinsey's jewelry cabinet. So we'll see uh, what journeys. There are plenty more keys that are introduced in the comic. I think we got about, you know, somewhere in the teens here in the series, but uh, there's a lot more that they could explore in a season two. So I hope they get that renewal and that we hear about it soon. But one show that has no problem with renewals, Dave, is the next show we're going to be talking about. What's your show topic next week? 
we are going to talk about Outlander Season 5, first two episodes, and this is a weekly series, not a Netflix, where they drop all eight, ten episodes at once. So by the time we record, only three episodes will have aired. We'll talk about two in detail, have a little mini spoiler zone. But yeah, this is uh, one of those situations that as long as Diana Gabaldon keeps producing novels, I think they're going to keep making Outlander. Yeah, and it's an unsung hero. We talked about Outlander way back in season one of Sci-Fi Fidelity, but it was at a time where we were transitioning to a new format, so we didn't really talk about it in great detail. I think it was season two at the time that was airing, so I'm glad this show finally made it to our discussion because, you know, we talk a lot about season ones (laughs) and not a whole lot about deeper seasons so we're going to go deep for the outlander fans out there yeah and i know some of you are out there thinking outlander that's that show with kissing (laughs) nope yeah time travel too (laughs) yeah so that's going to be next week on the podcast hope you guys are looking forward to that but that's going to be it for this episode of sci-fi fidelity keep the discussion going on social media you can follow den of geek on twitter and facebook at den of geek us and we are at sci-fi fidelity And in the meantime, we'd love it if you could rate and review the podcast wherever you access it. Be sure to send us your suggestions for future discussion topics, either through social media or send it via email to sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.